Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Spencer Anderson, who's a fifth-year resident at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio. He's originally from Warner Robins, Georgia. He went to college at the University of Georgia and medical school at the Mercer University School of Medicine. His academic interests include breast reconstruction, maxillofacial trauma, targeted muscle reinnervation, and cosmetic surgery. Spencer, welcome to the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I'd love to start by hearing a broad overview of the program structure at Wright State. So our program structure is an integrated residency program, uh, six-year residency. And we have a rather interesting setup to where it is what you would expect in the intern year. And then, of course, second year as you graduate a little bit beyond doing general surgery and off-service rotations. But we have a lot of early autonomy because we are a small program. When I started, we were one resident a year. We are now growing that to where we have two residents in the second year and the intern year. And we're going to continue having two residents per year. Our program is very unique. I think in many facets due to the broad exposure and diversity of cases that we have throughout the six-year training. Although some of our graduates do choose to go on to fellowships, due to the diversity of cases that we receive, both including free tissue transfer, hand surgery, breast reconstruction, and cosmetic cases at the private offices, that most of our graduates feel comfortable and confident uh, to go directly into private practice or to their respective institution and start working. So I think that is a certainly a bonus to our program that is not seen at every location. About how many months on plastics do residents get in the first three years? So that topic is something that we talk about every year because it's something that is certainly malleable. We're not set at a certain amount. For example, when I started, I think there was one month of plastics in my intern year. That has since grown to two months as we've gone on. And I think that we're currently at about three months in the intern year. And then, of course, with every year thereafter, that continues to grow. That fourth year onward, it's all plastic surgery. And what was your experience like when you were on the non-plastic services? So my experience was good. I think that the non-plastic services were certainly receptive to me, knowing that I was in plastic surgery. However, we were all team players. We knew that we were on the same team and we got the job done. So it was very enjoyable to learn skills that I think are certainly helpful, even as a plastic surgery resident, and certainly made great friends along the way that we continue to collaborate with on multiple patients in common throughout the six-year training program. And what are some of the different sites that you rotate through? So we have some rather large hospital systems that we work with, one being the Miami Valley Premier Hospital System that has a main campus, which is essentially our home. Then it has a south location and a north location that we operate at. There's also the Kettering Hospital Systems, where we work currently at the main Kettering location. That may change in the future. We'll likely go to their other hospital locations. Then we have the Dayton Children's Hospital that has since combined with the Shriners Hospital. So we're having even a higher volume of pediatric cases that we're doing. And then there's, uh, I believe, five or six uh, private offices that we work with. In terms of those main hospitals, would you say there's a, much of a difference in the patient population that you see at them? Yes, I think that at one of the hospital systems, it is certainly more directed at the indigent care population, where we do a lot of wound care. It is a level one trauma 
So we see certainly a large variety of different case presentations, patients in different social circumstances that need help beyond operative needs that we help facilitate manage with the social workers. And then, of course, uh, there's the other hospital systems that are probably more geared towards the uh, insurance payer population. So we do get exposure to all of the above. And are there any plastic surgery fellows? We do not have any fellowships currently. And can you walk me through what call is as you progress through the years? The intern year, we are not on plastic surgery call alone. We are certainly doing our general surgery, but we do backup or buddy call during the latter part of the intern year to get us ready for taking call by ourselves in the second year, which I think is certainly a great setup rather than just being thrown right into it when you start second year. We do start taking call by ourselves in the second year, and it's certainly equally spread amongst all the residents. The second year is taking the same number of call as the resident third, fourth, fifth, and sixth year. And even as a chief, the number of call shifts doesn't really change, which some would say well, that's unfortunate, but some will say that also you keep your skills sharp all the way up to the end when you're managing patients at bedside in the ER, taking maxillofacial call, et cetera. I think that it's evenly spread, and we also offer backup. From a standpoint, if, if an emergency comes up and someone's unavailable or a resident has to back out, then we're so close, uh, we know what it means to help one another, and so somebody jumps right on it. And I'd imagine that could even shift more in the next few years as you get the full cohort of 12. Yeah, that'll be very nice. I mean, less call shifts when we get a larger number, but uh, I certainly don't mind taking the call. And do you get any kind of a uh, post-call day, or is there some flexibility if you you know have a really busy night? So we do not have set post-call days. However, under the circumstance where we do have an extraordinarily busy night, then we do have others help cover for us to where we can either take the entire day off or just get a few extra hours of sleep to catch up. And how is call split in terms of hand and face? So the hand call is more primarily driven by the orthopedic residents. When we are on the hand blocks, then we are taking call with those residents. And for FACE, we really have no competition with ENT residents, although there is an ENT program in town. They don't take call with us. So we are on max face call all the time. And so we have no shortage of cases in that regard. You mentioned about a couple different hospitals. When you're on call, are you assigned to just one of those sites or are you covering multiple hospitals at a time? The way our call shifts are currently designed, we are on call for multiple locations. However, there are two locations where the attendings do take primary call. And that is something that is in the works as we continue to change our program and grow our program size, that we will soon be taking primary call at all the locations. However, when that change comes, we'll likely be only overseeing one or two hospital locations, and not all of them at the same time. And what is the mid-level support like? We really don't have a lot of mid-level support. There are certain services. For example, there's a lot of overlap between ENT, who did a plastics fellowship where that particular surgeon works closely with our plastic surgery attendings and doing a lot of free flap reconstruction, head and neck reconstruction. They do have mid-levels that can help with rounding and seeing patients and manage floor management, et cetera. And then one of the other attendings does have a mid-level that helps with a lot of the breast reconstruction since that is their primary focus. But that aside, we, we don't really have many mid-levels working alongside us. So those two that you mentioned, those are like operative? No, they're not. They're actually more floor patient management and office. And are there any opportunities for elective rotations in the later years? There is an opportunity, for example, 
a resident that just recently graduated wanted to do rhinoplasty course and spend time with a particular surgeon focusing on rhinoplasty. Uh, so that was something that was uh, granted. It's not exactly concrete. I think it's whatever the particular resident is interested in and that that particular resident can choose to spend time in that field if they're choosing to go to a fellowship or if they're aiming more for private practice, they can do, for example, the rhinoplasty course. So it's really open to whatever the resident wants. And is that a set block of time that everybody gets or it's more like something you arrange? It is something that needs to be arranged. It's not a set time during the year. I think that's a benefit, though, because it, since we're a smaller program, we can, you know, do that. And are there any opportunities for either short global trips or like a longer global surgery rotation? Yeah, absolutely. So prior to COVID, the senior resident would go on a mission trip every year. Dr. Schmidt, one of the attendings, his family has a uh, mission that they do every year in two different countries. Another attending goes to Cuba every year. And then we recently had an attending that retired, unfortunately, but would go to Guyana. And so between those locations for a week uh, or sometimes more than a week, uh, the senior resident would go and have just a wonderful experience uh, working at those countries. Has anyone ever done like an additional experience besides the ones that are built in? No, not during residency, to my knowledge. Do you know if that trip that is like pretty annual, is that taken as part of the resident's vacation? Or do they not have to take vacation time for it? No, we have academic time set for that so that the resident doesn't have to utilize vacation days. Do you know if the cases count? That is also something that is in the process. I know previously they did not count just due to the logistics and lack of follow-up, et cetera. That is something that the program director has been working to, to get for us. And so that is still in the works. I know you mentioned some, about working with about five or six different cosmetic practices. So can you talk a little bit about like when you get that cosmetic experience over the years? That cosmetic experience comes um, as early as the second year. And because we're a smaller program, we're one-on-one -on -one with the attending. And so very often we're not double scrubbed with a senior resident. So as a second year, I remember doing some of my first facelifts and abdominoplasties and pending the surgeon that we're working with often will allow you to work on your side and go at it as your skill set will allow. Like I said, it's a very early autonomy that has certainly graduated. And that's something that I appreciate about the program is that I'm not standing behind somebody all the way up until my fourth or fifth year. Very early on, I'm hands-on and I'm learning the concepts and the process. And are those experiences intermittent? And then do you have any dedicated blocks where you spend, let's say, a month with a private practice attending? It is dedicated time. I would say that certainly there's two offices that come to mind, almost exclusively cosmetic. One office has three providers. Uh, one of those providers is more so with breast reconstruction, but the other two providers are very heavy cosmetic, almost to the point that you feel like you're in a cosmetic fellowship. And another provider is also exclusively cosmetic. And we do between two to three months at a time at those locations. So it's not a one week here and a one week there. We get to see the patients at the consult, do the case, and we're there long enough to see them at follow-up multiple weeks out so that we can understand the process and know how to manage these patients. So is that two to three months per year in the senior years? No, it's uh, two months to three months even in the second year. Is there like a chief resident cosmetic clinic where you know from the beginning, see the patient, book the patient, do your own follow-up for your own patients? That is something that we had um, a couple of years ago until a hospital closed, which is where our resident 
clinic was located. We are in the process of getting a new office space right now for our new resident clinic, which I'm hoping in 2022 will be functional. And what's your experience like with gender affirmation surgery? So we do a lot of top surgery. There's two providers that we work with that do a lot of gender affirmation surgery. And so we do get a pretty good exposure to that. I can say we certainly don't do any bottom surgery. We'd have to go to an alternative program for that. But absolutely, getting to see these patients, understanding their needs, uh, what they want, and working with them through the operation and seeing them at follow-up is certainly rewarding. And how about lymphedema? So we do manage a lot of lymphedema patients in our indigent wound clinic. We're not doing lymph node transfer or anything to that degree. That is something that I think would be interesting to see. However, currently, that's just something we don't have offered here. But there's no question we have a lot of lymphedema patients. And I know you already talked a little bit about, you know, the autonomy that you get to experience, especially from working one-on-one and very closely with attendings. Could you walk me through like an illustration with a deep what each resident level would get to do at each stage of the procedure? Absolutely. And sometimes that is attending who you're working with. Some are a little more lax than others. But for example, I remember in my second year when I was working at the private office, they walked me through a facelift and we happened to have two facelifts that day. And then the second facelift, they allowed me to take the lead on one side of the face, which really opened your eyes up to that early on in my training career to what it's like to watch somebody do it and then actually have it in your hands and trying to figure out, am I doing this right? Am I at the right level, et cetera? But it's that early exposure that when I did my third facelift and my fourth facelift, I was certainly able to get more confidence in myself and understand the anatomy and what I was looking at and where I needed to be and where I didn't need to be. So absolutely, that the autonomy comes early and there's high expectations from the attendings for that reason that when you're rolling into your third and fourth year, you should know what you're doing and you should be good at it. When do you start to get some like autonomous micro? So that's something that also comes early since we are doing a much higher volume of head and neck free tissue transfer particularly now that ENT attending that I mentioned has come, who is also bringing on another partner. So we'll continue to grow that collaboration, but also a breast and lower extremity free tissue transfer. I remember being towards the latter part of my second year under the microscope, suturing an anastomosis. And of course, in my third year, working with head and neck, sitting down with another resident across from me, and we did the anastomosis and the coupling of the vein all by herself. And uh, certainly the attendings are there to jump in when they need to, but Absolutely. We're under the microscope very early. What's the research experience, both in terms of expectations and opportunities? So we are wanting to grow and foster more research at our program. I know uh, classically our expectations are one publication and one podium or poster presentation throughout your six years, which I think is very minimal, very easy to achieve. But there's a lot of low-hanging fruit, and I think that anyone that wants to engage further, the opportunity is whether it be more data-driven chart-digging research, or even a cadaveric-type research, because we have a cadaver lab through the Wright State Anatomic Gift Program that I won't say we have unlimited cadavers, but there are certainly no shortage. And we've done a lot of cadaveric studies that way. And now that I'm in my fifth year, I've successfully published 18 papers with many more in the pipeline, only because I'm very interested in it. And I work uh, directly with a lot of the students who are also interested in that, hence why I have a higher volume than some of the other residents. That's not the expectation. I think if if you want to come to Wright State and do research, you can. If you want to come to Wright State and get your one publication and go into private practice, you can do that too. And what kind of support's available when you're ready to present your research? 
We have a lot of support. Anytime that we have been accepted for a poster or a podium, the attendings will have us present it at our conference in front of everybody. So there's an opportunity for them to ask us questions and really put us on the spot, make sure you know what you're talking about so that we're well prepared for the conference. Also, there is financial compensation. Again, we are very supportive of those that are going to these conferences or even publication fees related to publishing the manuscript, that we have education money from the program, from Wright State, and also there's additional money as needed from private donations for any residents that are publishing more than one paper a year or going to more than one conference. And are there any other awesome perks you'd like to share? Yeah, there's absolutely a lot of perks I'd like to mention. We get a uh, food stipend. I think it's either 250 or 300 a month. It's more than enough. We have free parking at all of the hospital locations. We have, I mentioned, briefly mentioned the cadaver lab, which I think is certainly a bonus. We also have education money from the Wright State, which is $1,000 per year, which can be used towards loops or textbooks or even a new laptop computer. And then, of course, I mentioned there's additional funds as needed. Since we're a smaller program, we're basically like family amongst everyone. So a lot of the attendings will host gatherings and parties at their place we go to. There's a minor league ballpark in town that we have gathering to watch games. We go watch the Blue Jackets hockey team in Columbus. We're always out doing something and we have a great time. Are there any specific annual traditions? Yeah, so we have an annual Christmas gathering with one of the offices that is quite fun. We have an ugly Christmas sweater gathering with one of the other offices that we do. Unfortunately, didn't do it last year, but shout out to Andrew Parrish, uh, one of our residents, for winning the Ugly Sweater Contest uh, the year prior. And we've tried to make the minor league ball team as Dayton Dragons. That's something that we do annually. But yeah, there's a lot of things that we do that sometimes it's even more than once a year. And what area of plastic surgery would you say residents come out with the strongest experience in? I'd say that's more than one area because we easily get our numbers to graduate from axe face trauma in our second year just because there's so much volume. So there's no question that when you graduate, you can fix any facial fracture. We have such high volume of breast reconstruction and then also microvascular. I think those probably are easily are three big areas that residents are having no issue with. Aside from the residents wanting to take a rhinoplasty course, since I'll say probably we have less rhinoplasties comparatively speaking to other procedures. Since we're affiliated with so many private offices, in the history of our program, nobody has had to do a cosmetic fellowship because they don't need it. Because in these offices, you get such high volume, it is essentially a fellowship all in itself. And how would you improve your program? I think that the way that we'd improve our program is what we're doing right now, which is expanding. Because I think that I've mentioned a lot of benefits to being a small program, but there's a lot of downsides to being a small program with less residents. So now that we're Growing the number to two a year, that's something we've been working on in the process when I even started my intern year, and that's something we finally got going. So I think it's really going to help uh, change the program. There was a time where we felt that we weren't getting enough pediatric cases. We were having enough to graduate, but those that were interested in doing a fellowship felt that they could always have more. And since uh, one of the attendings helped facilitate their movement joining the Dayton Children's Campus, that's going to tremendously help our numbers and exposure where there's a possibility of creating a fellowship for that in the future. And now to transition, I'd love to hear about your program leadership. So Dr. Michael Johnson is our program director and Ms. Nancy Bates is our program coordinator. Dr. Johnson is not only the director, but also the chair for both plastics and the orthopedic departments. Busy to say the least. 
Miss Bates does a phenomenal job of keeping us all in line and keeping everything in order. And then, of course, we have a lot of supportive associate professors, uh, some who are graduates of the program and some who are not, that really keep things moving with our program, are very supportive and very helpful. And what would you say is the total number of surgical faculty that you work with? Oh, goodness, I'd have to count them all up. But definitely, there's more faculty than there are residents. Can you tell me about a time when you brought an issue up to Dr. Johnson and how he responded? Dr. Johnson is probably the most easily accessible person uh, that I've ever known, whether it be email, phone, or even his office. He has uh, essentially an open-door policy that really at any time you can approach him and he'll either make time to speak with you or schedule time to where it's uninterrupted. And I know I've taken some issues to him, which uh, he's listened to me and we'll do what we need to do to make it right. And so I certainly appreciate that of him. And I like that he offers that resource to us. And are you applying to fellowship or interested in fellowship? No. Early on, I thought I wanted to do a fellowship. That has since changed, and I have actually taken a job offer for a private practice, which I'm very excited about. But I think that as I went on through the training, I realized there's just so many good things in plastic surgery that I didn't want to focus on just one. I want to be a general practitioner and do my best to do as much of it as I can. And so that was my attraction to a private office where I feel like I can still do trauma call and breast reconstruction and, and targeted muscle renovation and incorporate some cosmetic surgery. How did the faculty help you come to that decision? Any help with the job search? And was there any kind of pushback for choosing not to do a fellowship? No. So we have a lot of support from the attendings. Early on, we are assigned somewhat of a mentor, although any of them are approachable and available. Our particular mentor certainly coaches us along the way and does not sway us because my mentor is a plastic-strained hand surgeon who did a fellowship at Louisville. And um, despite that, he is fully supportive of me going into private practice. So absolutely, there's great support all the way around. If you look at our track record of our graduates, you can see that a number of them have gone into fellowships and a number have gone into private practice. And in terms of finding a job, was there any particular help or, or guidance? Absolutely. I think with some of the more recent graduates, there was some help as far as connections that some of the attendings knew some people that they helped make a phone call to set up an opportunity to discuss or facilitate them getting a job. And in other cases, they're happy to write a letter or make a phone call on our behalf to make sure that they do everything they can to make it happen. Do you see any upcoming changes in the faculty in the next few years? Possibly. I know that there's a few faculty that are, one did just retire, and then there's maybe one or two more that looking to shorten their 10-year plan to a five-year plan. And so we are looking to hire people to join the program. There's possibility that a current resident may stay around and join the program, which we've certainly had happen on numerous occasions in the past. So absolutely, that's something that will be in process over the next couple of years. And what kind of a role do residents play in department decision-making for things like picking new residents or hiring new faculty? I know our faculty has been pretty stable during the time that I've been here, so I have not had to sit at the table to discuss the possible hiring of a new faculty. But we are directly involved with reviewing the applicants for residency and, of course, interviewing the applicants and coming up uh, with the rank list. It's certainly a role played by both the current residents intern through chief and all the other attendings with Dr. Johnson. 
And how would you say your program promotes diversity and inclusion and slash or helps you develop into a culturally competent resident? We're definitely a very diverse program. I know that when we're looking at applicants, we want those applicants that are looking to achieve goals in areas that we know we can help them get there. That's what we look for when we interview them. We look at them as the whole person. We're not fixated on a step score. We're not fixated on a certain number of publications. I think we're looking more at them uh, more well-rounded. And with that, the diversity comes from the standpoint that we currently have a resident from Iran and a resident from Russia who have well incorporated into our program. And like I said, we act as a family and we see everybody as family members. And so since you brought them up, your program has taken some international medical graduates? We sure have. Absolutely. They are currently in the second and third year spots. And those residents certainly come from different backgrounds and different experiences. We've certainly helped them get acclimated throughout the process. Certainly transitioning from general surgery to plastics is not the easiest, but it absolutely can be done. And so we work directly with them to make sure that the transition is as seamless as possible, especially when they start taking call and they're looking at maxillofacial CT scans that they've never looked at before. And so we use our weekly education time to really work them and hone in on their skills. So they transferred in from general surgery residencies? They did. And in general, how would you describe the culture or vibe? I think the vibe is good. I think certainly we all have different personalities. We all have different interests to a degree outside of the hospital. But despite all of that, like I said, I spend more time with them than some of my family members anyway. I think when we do all these um, activities together, certainly there's always somebody, unfortunately, out due to call. <laughs> but when we get together, it's just like a, a reunion. We're all having a great time and we all get along well. And sometimes one-on-one we'll go out for a dinner or go out for an activity. So it's, it's just uh, pending availability and who's in the mood to do something. And what would you say is like the most important quality of a resident who would fit well in your program? Some important qualities for residents that want to be a part of our program is open-mindedness, hardworking, dedicated, and committed. I think that all those things together certainly lead to success, uh, not only for the resident, but also the program. And so now for this last part, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about resident lifestyle. So do most residents own or rent? That's variable. I know there are some residents that currently own their home, and then I personally am currently renting a house, and then some of the junior residents are currently in, in downtown Dayton. And so it's a pretty pretty broad spread. But I think that with Dayton being a very affordable city, I think that there's an opportunity to do any of the above, hence why some of the residents do choose to buy their house. And for anyone who is not familiar with Dayton, like myself, for example, can you Explain a little bit about like where residents choose to live and in relation to the hospitals you work at. A lot of the incoming residents will live in an apartment downtown if they didn't take the opportunity to explore the area. Because uh, there's a lot of larger communities surrounding Dayton, which have a lot of housing opportunity that are close to the hospitals we work at. But I think it is easier to move into an apartment downtown because it is close to three of the hospitals that we work at. But there are some surrounding communities that are very nice communities, very safe, yet still close to everything. Buying a house or renting a house in those areas certainly is very doable. And uh, that said, Dayton, although on the smaller side 
from a city population standpoint, still has a lot to do from a restaurant standpoint, a lot of different outdoor trails and parks during the warm spring and summer months. There's outdoor venues with concerts and festivals. But then Dayton is in a great location that it is a stone's throw away from Cincinnati or Columbus for those that want to go to a bigger city or go watch Ohio State football game. Those opportunities are certainly there. And what's the spread of residents being single, married, and having kids? Most of the residents are married. Some of the residents do have kids, and then some of the junior residents are single. When I started, I think that there were more married residents than single. Now, I think it's probably a pretty even split. But those residents that do have children, we absolutely work with them when they need a little extra time if something comes up or doctor's appointments for their kids. Even one of the uh, wives of the attendings loves to babysit. So that's also very nice and very helpful. Is it necessary to have a car? It is absolutely necessary to have a car. I think that since we work at so many different hospital systems that are spread out, it'd be very difficult if you did not have one. And what is the commute usually like approximately with some of the different hospitals? So from where I live, the commute to one hospital is about six minutes. Commute to the children's hospital is, I think, 11. To the other hospital that we primarily spend the most time at, I'd say about 13 minutes. So not bad at all. Very doable. So you already mentioned some of the things you like about living in Dayton. And I saw that you are originally more from the South. So how was the transition to the Midwest winters? Yeah, quite difficult. I think there was record snowfall the year that I moved up here. I thought I had heavy jackets and good shoes, and I found out I did not. So that first winter was quite troubling, but thereafter I've learned I've got appropriate clothing. And I, I guess I can say I don't know that I particularly mind it. I think the snow is pretty. I hate driving in it. I can admit that I've fallen down a time or two in the icy areas, but I don't mind it, but I'm ready to go back south to start working a private practice where there's a little less snow. Sure. And there's covered parking at the hospitals? So there is a covered deck at all of the hospitals. However, there are some open parking lots that are a little easier to get to. So if you don't mind scraping your windshield every now and then. That is almost everything I wanted to talk about today. Any one piece of advice to give to a new intern? Advice to a new intern would be stay focused on on the goal. Uh, have short and long-term goals in mind. I think that going through residency is certainly has its ups and downs. Early on, there's may have more downs than ups, but rely on the people around you. Learn from everybody that you can and stay focused and stay true to yourself and take time for yourself and uh, you will be successful. And how could interested students find out more about I encourage the interested students to check out our website and on the plastic surgery tab, and there's an opportunity to reach out to Mrs. Bates. When you reach out to her, she has a list of residents or emails that she can forward to you. If you want direct information, we're happy to talk with you. I'm happy to talk by email or phone and can answer any questions that you have. Uh, we encourage any students that are interested to come spend some time with us on either a two-week or four-week rotation, or even come see us on a weekend if you're close by. Take Buddy Call with me. We'll certainly show you what Dayton has to offer, what we do in the, at the hospitals, and also what we do for fun. We'd be happy to have you. Is there a program Instagram? Absolutely. Our Instagram account is Right State Plastics, so check us out. Wonderful. Spencer, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Absolutely. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.